When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 278, and we are recording on April 20th. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson and my allergies, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. (laughs) Welcome, Allergy Central. Everything is blooming. It's beautiful. It's also very painful. Aw. It's okay. I'll survive. Me and my Flonase will get through it. (laughs) I just got on Claritin this year. So, well, I am joining you for the first time. Oh, welcome. Welcome. I did that terrifying thing like two weeks ago. I've, you know, I've been vaccinated, but I was still like, do I have COVID? Yeah. Am I dying? What's happening? Mm-hmm. And then I was I know it was you. You put something on the company Slack that was yes. like, is it a cold or is it allergies? And I was like, right. <laughs> allergies. I don't have COVID. I'm not dying. <laughs> I'm allergic to pollen. <laughs> yes. No, it's really real, though, especially last summer when we were all so afraid and didn't know, you know, so much about what was going on and how it actually mm-hmm. worked. Every time I blew my nose, I was terrified that people were going to be like chasing me w- away with pitchforks or something. I was like, it's just allergies, I swear. Oh, yes. But yes. it's uh, it's now that we know a little bit more, I feel much more confident in my COVID versus allergies diagnoses. Uh, so <laughs> here we are. Hello. <laughs> I have um, exercise-induced rhinitis. Which is, <gasps> I'm sorry, that's TMI for all of you. But like, When I work out, I get a very runny nose and I'm forever at the gym, like performative hand sanitizer. Please don't Mm. kick me out. I don't have a virus. I am. Everything is clean. (laughs) You need like a little like button that says like working out makes me sneeze or something. I I keep my mask is on. I'm hand. They have hand sanitizing stations everywhere. So I'm like always using them. Yeah. Just in case anybody is looking at me. (laughs) I didn't know that was a thing. Well, the more you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> welcome to welcome to Nose Corner on Get <laughs> Booked. It's Nose Corner everywhere in April. It's fine. Well, that's just true. It's just true. All right, let's see. How is this show supposed to work? Oh, right. We talk about books. This is, as we said, a personalized reading recommendation show, which means that you can send in your requests for a book recommendation. It can be for you. Maybe there's a book you love and you haven't been able to find something similar. Maybe you need a pick for a friend or a relative. Maybe you need a pick for travel or your book club, whatever. You can email those questions to us at getbooked at bookriot.com. Or you can drop your question in the form that's at the bottom of the show notes over on bookriot.com. Each episode has show notes and there's a form. You can put your question in there. And if you have a time-sensitive question you're hoping to hear back by a certain date, please put time-sensitive, all caps, either in the subject line of the email or in the first line of the form and the date you're hoping to hear back by. We'll do our best. Uh, If we want to answer you and we are not going to get to it on air before then, we might shoot you an email with some ideas. So keep an eye out for those. And we have a whole bunch of feedback today, Mm -hmm. listener feedback with recommendations. Our first one is from Jeff, who says, for Rodrigo, the computer science teacher, in episode 272, I'm halfway through Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big (laughs) Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy by Kathy O'Neill, and I highly recommend it so far. The next generation of computer programmers and data scientists need exposure to this as well. That is a great title first of all. Mm -hmm. All right, let's see. Next one is from Linda, who says, for the person seeking books that take place over a short time period, I highly recommend Last Night at the Lobster by Stuart Onan. It takes place at a red lobster that will shut down permanently and is a very detailed account of their final evening open. Yeah, that book, we sold a bajillion of that when I was in bookstores Mm -hmm. and it came out. We just like, we would have like a stack of 20 on the front table and they would be gone by the end of the shift. It was bananas. All right, let's see. Our next recommendation comes from Angie, who has options for Lonely Nonfiction Friend. 
For the book club member who's interested in Victorian times, Unmentionable, The Victorian Lady's Guide to Sex, Marriage, and Manners by Therese O'Neill. The book covers what life was like for a Victorian woman. For the linguistics-minded friend, The Mother Tongue, English and How It Got That Way by Bill Bryson. It's a fun and funny look at how English developed over time. Let's see. All right. Okay. Yes, that's all of our feedback. Good job, everybody. (laughs) Okay. Amanda's going to read our first question, then we'll do a sponsor, and away we go. All right. Our first question is from Catherine, who says, Years ago, I read the translation of the Swedish book, The Unit. It's one of those underrated books that deserves more love. It's a sci-fi novel featuring an older woman who moves into a senior home that is more than what it seems. Residents get the life of luxury and all their needs and dreams met, but they are required to go through weekly blood and drug tests, and many participate in questionable experiments. It's a book about trust, good and evil, the elderly, and how far things might go in the future. I would love to find more books featuring elderly folk, especially genre books, sci-fi, horror, thrillers, suspense. I've read Frederick Bachman, The Lido, The Curious Charms of Arthur Pepper, in other words, charming, quaint books with happy, hopeful endings. Can you recommend any books with a twist or uncertainty or a hint of something unexpected? Okay, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read, and I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer, always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. All right, genre books about the elderly. Jen, what you got? Such a good question. Mm-hmm. I picked Turn of Mind by Alice LaPlante, which is a thriller. And I remember when this came out and I was obsessed with it because it's <laughs> such an interesting premise. The main character is a surgeon who is now retired and she is struggling with dementia. So think like Meredith Grey's mom, more or less, but not quite as far gone as that. And her best friend, not Meredith Grace mom's best friend, the main character of this book, Dr. Jennifer White, <laughs> her best friend is found dead with four of her fingers surgically removed. And so obviously, like, she's one of the suspects, but she mm-hmm. actually doesn't know whether or not she did it because dementia. So... It's a first person like sort of journal narrative. And sh- the main character is literally trying to figure out whether she committed a murder and if so, why. And it goes so many different places. It is so twisty turny. I thought it was amazing. It's really, really, really well done. Really well written. And yeah, I like will never forget. This book will live in my head forever. So again, that's Turn of Mind by Alice LaPlante. 
Okay, I picked Sisters of the Vast Black by Lena Rather, which is a sci-fi novel from Tor.com. And it is about a, what do you call it? Uh, an order, <laughs> an order of nuns. I'm not Catholic, so the terminology escapes me sometimes. An order of nuns who are on a spaceship that is alive. Like it, the way that they describe it, that they describe it makes it sound like like they're living inside of a snail, almost like like in the old school Doctor Doolittle movie, if you remember mm. that. Like they're living inside of a snail, and when the book opens, they're having this like very heated debate about whether or not their ship has a soul, <laughs> and it's like. That's interesting uh, because it might be about to breed like it's going into heat and they have to decide what to do with their ship and if they should change direction and all of that. And in this uh, universe, figurative and literal, Old Earth has sent Catholic nuns uh, out into the world or out into the universe to serve colonies. And so they would take their crucifixes and their whatever, <laughs> the wafers that people give for communion, and they go out into the colonies and they do the rites and the rituals. And this order of nuns has existed on the ship alone for several years. They're just kind of out there doing their own thing. The reverend mother, who is in charge of the order, and I guess is like the de facto captain of the ship, took a vow of silence in her youth, like very, when she was a young adult. So she hasn't spoken in years, and she communicates mostly through sign language with the rest of the crew. But she is also quite elderly and her mind is starting to go a bit and so on top of like what do we do with the ship the 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 nuns are having to figure out what to do about their reverend mother and at that time they get a distress call from a newly formed colony they show up and they realize that something is very amiss there's like a disease that has been released but it's one that they thought was eradicated and they get involved this like poor ship of nuns on this living breathing snail get involved in this very dangerous government cover-up all while their reverend mother is losing her ability to make decisions and the church has sent them a priest. And this is like very unusual. First of all, they've not seen a man in like a bajillion years. They've not had anyone telling them what to do. This order of nuns is very independent and now there's a priest who's like 25 who's going to get on their ship and try to tell them how to do things, which is absolutely unacceptable to all of them. Um, he is very, by the book, like the book being the Bible, <laughs> he's very literal he doesn't have a lot of compassion for anyone. He follows a lot of rules, doesn't make room in the rules for humanity. So there's like a small mutiny amidst the nuns. And then you find out the backstory of the Reverend Mother. And that's where the twist comes in, which I cannot tell you because it is a spoiler. But it's very genre based out in space. There's a mystery. There's a little bit of political thriller happening. There's a big reveal at the end. And it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. So that's Sisters of the Vast Black by Lena Rather. All right. Next question is from Jenny, who says, my brother and I both love reading and keep trying to recommend books for each other, but we have very different tastes. Books we've read this year that we thought might fit the bill for both of us are Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, he loved and I struggled through. We both enjoyed The Examined Life, How We Lose and Find Ourselves by Stephen Gross and Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He prefers books that challenge him, that are eye-opening slash life-changing, and he'll enjoy it if it's really long. He likes nonfiction memoirs about war and classics that have stood the test of time. I adore what he likes to call pop fiction, crime, thriller, horror, anything recently published, fast-paced, and relatively short. Can you suggest something that might work for both of us? I started laughing a little bit when I was reading this question because I remember being like, this is hard. <laughs> like the reason that you're having trouble finding right. books that work for both of you is because you have very different tastes. Mm -hmm. But I admire your persistence and your willingness to keep trying things. So, Amanda, what did you pick for these two? <laughs> Um, so I picked Piranesi by Susanna Clark, uh, which is was long listed for the Women's Prize. And that's why I picked it up. And I picked it because it is of medium length, so both of you should be okay with it. And it is a very philosophical, even at times quasi-religious, like there's a lot of symbolism in it, novel wrapped up in a uh, big, big mystery. And uh, in fact, a murder mystery even. So I think there is a lot of intersection between your two areas of interest. So Piranesi is the main character, and he lives in a giant house that is also the whole world. So his entire universe is this house. It has infinite rooms and wings, um, and he has an eidetic memory, so he has been able to make a map of many of the rooms. And also the house is flooded, like the bottom two floors um, contain oceans, and there are tides, so there's a lot of danger. The house is full of statues of various sizes and some some weird, like, random wildlife, like 
since it's kind of, the house is also an ocean, there's a lot of fish, there's uh, birds, albatrosses, a lot of a lot of things like that. And he is there mostly alone, um, except for one other person he calls the other, who is a man who shows up every like two weeks and they have a meeting. And the other is doing this scientific research in the house, trying to figure out where the house came from. Like also, what is the source of all knowledge? If we figure out where this house came from and who made it, we can use that knowledge to control other people. Etc. And Piranesi is helping him with that through his mapping of the house. The problem is there are no other people. Like nobody else is a lot. There's just the two of us. So what are you talking about, first of all? Uh, and also there are other things about the other that confuse Piranesi. Like he always brings him presents, you know, like new shoes or a net to catch fish or things like that. But where does he get them? You know, and, you know, it's very obvious that the other doesn't have any knowledge of the house or how to get around it. So he's not like exploring other wings and bringing things to him. So all of that is very mysterious. Other than that, Piranesi is very content. He's developed this almost religious consideration of the house, like the house provides for me, the house you know, has mercy, all of this kind of stuff. Um, but then he starts picking up signs that there's another person, like a living person, trying to contact him in the house. And then it becomes like a race between him and the other to find that person first and get answers about what is, that, what is actually going on. So... The whole mystery here is like, where is this guy? <laughs> you know, like, obviously the universe is not a house and you pick up pretty quickly that the other doesn't live in this. House. Like he lives in the normal world because he's bringing him like McDonald's and shopping bags. Right. So those are coming from somewhere. So like what is going on? Uh, how did this guy get in this house? Who is the other? All of that. And the more you get into it, the more uh, it becomes. If you've read the night film, it's got some flavors of that, like a almost mythical creative genius is at the heart of all of these mysteries the creative genius who's also like very dangerous and horrible to everyone around him and it is i think very much about the evolution of personal religious beliefs because of the way that piranesi takes his danger and his situation and turns it into something he can depend on and lean on to make sense of so i think there would be a lot for you and your brother to pick through and talk about I don't know if it would be life-changing, but it is definitely going to generate some introspection. But it's a fast-paced enough, and there is, like, a, you know, at the heart of it, several mysteries that I think you'll be able to get there pretty fast. So that's Piranesi by Susanna Clark. I have to read that book. It was also mm. on a list. I think it's the Hugo shortlist. So mm. it's, it's on my radar, obviously. Susanna <laughs> Clark is on my radar. Like, duh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway. I got really hung up on this idea about like classics and also books that are about like the search for meaning and like, you know, big time spans and then also page turners. Like these are the sort of elements that I honed in on from this question. And so I picked Homegoing by Yeah Jesse uh, because I think this is a modern classic and I think it is very page turning. I think it feels bigger on the inside than it actually is. It's clocks in around 300 pages, uh, but it it just reads so naturally. It's It's got its own internal rhythm that I think, you know, it might be a little more on the heavy side than a lot of the pop fiction, jokingly, that you call it. But I still think both of you would get a ton out of it. And it's a really good book to read with somebody else because there's so much going on in it that it's nice to be able to discuss with somebody in real time. Content Warning for Racial Violence. This book follows two lineages. Uh, it starts, you know, like 300 years from sort of present-ish day in Ghana. And there are two sisters, Effia and Essie, who are half-sisters. And they don't really know each other. Uh, they're born into different villages in the 1800s, in, or excuse me, 18th century in Ghana. And one of them gets married to an English man. Uh, and lives in sort of relative comfort, considering, uh, in the Cape Coast castle. But her half-sister, Essie, is imprisoned and enslaved and, you know, sent to America. Um, and so all, they, you follow their two different lineages, their children, their children's children, etc., into the present day and then sort of a little bit into the future and what they experience in their relative, you know, situations and geographies. And it's such a sweeping huge, fascinating storyline. And I really struggle to like pin down, you know, mm -hmm. any specific plot points to talk about because so much happens. But it's also it just like I said, it flows naturally one lineage into the next. I do think 
it's possible to get too hung up on the like family tree stuff. So if you're willing to just like go with it a little bit, it it all sort of fits together over time. And it's also not like so important that you remember exactly which generation that this is. Just like let the book carry you. But yeah, it's a really compelling read. I think it. I do think it's a modern classic. I think this will be in the canon for a long time, very deservedly. Mm-hmm. And I think you both could get a lot out of it. So again, that's Homegoing by Yeah Jesse. All right. Question three is from Carissa, who says, I'm going to northern Maine with my husband for a makeshift honeymoon since ours was canceled from COVID in June. And I'm looking for recommendations for books to read on the ride up from Philadelphia. I'm open to anything except horror, sci-fi, and mystery. But something with a national park or nature feel would be nice. I would also request a Red Sox book for me. I know next to nothing about baseball. But since we will be going to a game on the way to Maine, I would like to know something about the stadium or the team before going. Okay. I'm going to keep going. I picked the I took the Red Sox question, part of this question, and I picked Feeding the Monster by Seth Manukin, uh, which is kind of the like ultimate Red Sox man not manual, but like book, <laughs> you know, nonfiction book. He's a journalist, and uh, it covers the history of the team from about 2004, I think, which was when the owner Tom Yockey sold the team to Tom Warner and John Henry and everything that came after there. So up until that point, the Red Sox were a pretty poor for performing team. And then the new owners really turned it around and did that kind of money ball thing where they started making decisions based on statistics instead of, you know, like gut feelings that coaches or whatever tend to have. And he also spent a lot of time in the clubhouse and like in the weight room and in the the front office with the employees from the team, getting a feel for how the culture was shifting from before when the the previous owner was very much like a like drunken playboy, kind of a cliche of a sports team owner um, who did not make decisions that were in the best interests of the team or the employees, the, the, the shift from that to making the Red Sox into like a professional franchise that wins games, which of course, now they do. So I think that you don't need like, you're going to watch one game, right? And you're not that interested in baseball. So I don't think that you need an entire history of the sport or the stadium or the team, <laughs> but getting a, you know, a background on like why the team is now the way it is or why the fans behave the way that they do now, as opposed to before, like maybe in the 90s or whatever, I think that's quite enough. So that's Feeding the Monster by Seth Manukin. All right. So I obviously took the National Park nature book feel part of the question. And I was poking around for something that we haven't already recommended a thousand times on this show. And so I found this one. It's a little bit on spec because my copy did not come in in time for me to read any of it before recording. But it sounds super interesting. And I thought it might be a good fit for you. It's The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek by Kim Michelle Richardson. This is super interesting. This takes place in Appalachia. It is in the 1930s and in Kentucky. And apparently this is like a real thing. There's a blue people ancestry. Like there's a certain sort of genetic predisposition where you have like slightly bluish skin. Mm. I This is real. I like Googled a little bit. It's fascinating. <laughs> and the main character, Cussie, is part of this genetic heritage. She's also like a backwoods librarian. She like and her mule go around, you know, through the creek beds and up into the mountains to take books to the hill folk of eastern Kentucky who like don't otherwise have much contact with the outside world. And I'm just like, this is amazing. <laughs> it's a really interesting sounding premise. Like, give me a librarian and a mule, a mule, you know, traveling <laughs> around in nature, talking to an isolated population. Like, I absolutely need to read this book. And I thought it might be a good uh, book on the way up to somewhere else that is also nature Obviously, you know, Maine and Kentucky are not the same, but it, you ask for nature things, and this sounds super interesting. So again, this is The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek by Kim Michelle Richardson. All right, our next question is from Kenna, who says, I'm looking for a book, nonfiction or fiction, does not matter, that talks about relationships between semi-distant dads and daughters. My dad left my mom for another woman, now my stepmom, when I was six, so honestly, I was too young for it to be terribly traumatic. Now that I'm grown up, I'm 27, we barely speak. My stepbrother came out as trans a few years ago, and both my dad and stepmom have responded terribly to it, which was the thing that made me really give up on having a relationship with my dad. I am queer, and my fiancé is non-binary, and when I have introduced my previous partners to him, he just dismissed their pronouns and didn't get it. 
He does not even know I'm engaged. I have not spoken to him in two years. He recently reached out to me and wants to reconnect. But honestly, I'm at a point where I only want to put emotional energy into relationships that are fulfilling. So I'm looking for something with an estranged relationship between father and daughter, has queer themes slash queer main character, and there does not have to be a redemption arc or anything. In fact, I would like something where the daughter gets closure with deciding not to maintain a relationship with her father. So first of all, you don't know anybody anything. Mm-hmm. Like, get on with, you know, only putting emotional energy into relationships that are fulfilling. I support you. Yes, amen. Uh, Amanda, I feel like I've been talking for a thousand years. Why don't you go? <laughs> okay, I uh, took this question to the contributor because I was just drawing a blank. And Danica, who is a staff member here and runs a blog called The Lesbrary, which is exactly what it sounds like and is amazing and a wonderful, wonderful resource, recommended Follow Your Arrow by Jessica Verdi. So this is a young adult novel. It's a contemporary YA about a girl named Cece who is like internet famous. Like her and her girlfriend Sylvie are social media influencers. They have a bajillion followers and they post, you know, outfits of the day and all that kind of a thing. And then Sylvie dumps her and Cece has to deal with like, you know, losing her girlfriend who she desperately loved, but also maybe losing her career and like all that being a social media influencer with the brand based on her relationship, that's all gone. So like, what is she going to do now? And then she meets Josh, who is a new boy, and Cece is bi, and so she develops a crush on Josh. But Josh, like, is not on the internet. He does not care about internet influencers. He doesn't know that she's kind of internet famous. He doesn't know anything about her and her spectacularly public breakup with Sylvie. And she kind of, like, is into that. (laughs) You know, like, she can be not a brand. She can be just a normal human person with this boy and then you know but she keeps that secret from him and then all of that starts to come out she's got to deal with the fallout and all of that but as this is relevant to your question her dad stops speaking to her after she comes out and is like publicly dating sylvie he reaches out later when he finds out that she is now dating a boy because he thinks that means she's not queer anymore which is obviously false and so cc has to deal with that like oh now he now that i'm dating a boy and he thinks that i am acceptable in his eyes he's come back and and wants to have a relationship with me and she struggles a little bit with that and ultimately decides the same thing that you have decided like this is not a relationship worth putting my energy into if he's not going to accept me for who i am the fact that he only came back after he found out that i was dating a boy kind of says all that you know all that i need to know etc so there there's not reconciliation here and she very happily goes on with her life so that's follow your arrow by jessica verdi All right. I have sort of one and a half picks because neither Mm -hmm. one of my picks is exactly what you were looking for, but they're both adjacent. So first, I want to give a shout out to Man Alive by Thomas Page McBee, because that is a memoir about uh, a trans man who does it does include confronting the father who abused him for closure, but not reconciliation. So different situation, but I think very relevant. And then my full pick is A Prince on Paper by Alyssa Cole. This is not a queer story, but it is very much about freeing yourself from family baggage and narratives that have been constructed to limit you and to keep you like within the family dysfunction, more or less. So Prince on Paper is part of the Reluctant Royals series. It's number three in the series. You can read it on its own if you so desire, as always with romance. And the main character, Nia, is a woman. She is a black woman from Thessalo, which is like this, you know, sort of imaginary African country in an alternate version of our world who has sort of left her homeland because, you know, she has a really horrible, abusive, gaslighting father who has, like, messed everything up in her life and is now in prison. And she's like, I am done with that. I'm going to go have a life outside of this and not, like, try to fit myself into this tiny box that I was in for so much time. But she has to go back for a wedding. And she ends up sort of sharing a plane, a private jet, like you do, with this uh, prince who is like a like an international bad boy, kind of, and who she has had like 
a sort of media crush on, but never actually like wanted to interact in person with or thought she was going to get to. And it turns out that he, you know, has more going on than you would know from reading the tabloids. And so their relationship is a very interesting one because both of them have so much sort of to unpack about themselves and how they relate to each other. It's super fun and uh, really steamy and really great. There's a fake engagement, if that's a thing that you like. But the family piece of this is that circumstances sort of conspire to lead Nia to needing to have a confrontation with her father. And it's so satisfying. And I don't want to give away any of the specific details because I think it's really fun to like watch it unfold and be like, what is she going to choose to do? Like, this is such a complicated situation. But like I said, it's extremely satisfying the place that she comes to in the end. And you just feel like she has taken ownership of, yeah, her relationships and like what she's going to choose to dedicate energy and how she's going to do that. And I, I just I was like cheering. I reread the scene because I, I, it's been a minute since I read. I was like, is this as good as I remember? And it absolutely was. So again, that's A Prince on Paper by Alyssa Cole. All right. It is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, our next question is from Maria, who says, I realized recently that I kind of have Harry Potter as my ultimate favorite thing in my head as a default, because like for others, it was the first series I read that really drew me in. It made me love the characters. And I haven't felt like I've ever found that with another series. I don't want a Harry Potter read-alike because I know there are a lot of those. I really want a book, preferably a series, preferably not fantasy, that has those same elements that make Harry Potter so lovable. A small cast of really well-developed characters, an immersive and well-thought-out story, universal themes, found family, all of that. I just want an adult version of it that will draw me in in that way. Okay, would you want a science fiction? <laughs> yeah. So I realized that we both fit. Yeah, we picked, we both picked like what are kind of foundational books in the cozy sci-fi mm -hmm. uh, subgenre, which is, you know, everything that you've asked for and a really, really great source for found family stories. Um, so I picked Chilling Effect by Valerie Valdez, which I recommended to death last year, but it <laughs> haven't so far this year and it's still great. So whatever. Um, I checked. I checked the spreadsheet. I still have time. So Chilling Effect is about uh, a woman named Captain Ava Innocente, and she crews um, a small cargo ship that her and her crew, you know, use to make 
deliveries, like they write essentially errands for people uh, for, you know, not a lot of money, but it's a living. And their crew is made up of multiple species. Everybody gets along very well. It is very found family, right? Like all of them, it's like a ragtag group of outcasts um, and ne'er-do-wells and adventurers who have found themselves on this not exactly black market ship, but like not not black market ship (laughs) either kind of just live in life out in the in the deep black as you as you do. And so the captain has a sister named Mari who she gets me- a message that she's been kidnapped by the fridge which is this kind of space mafia syndicate that holds people hostage, they put them in cryostasis and then you pay till they they release them. Except what they want from Ava is that she has to do a bunch of missions as ransom. So she has to go run these errands for the mafia, essentially, to get her sister back. And she makes the really interesting decision to not tell her crew that that's what they're doing. Like, she just pretends that these are normal jobs. And so they have to go off and go do all of these dangerous missions. While that is happening, she also has um, a bunch of psychic cats on board, which were part of like the cargo of one of a previous a previous job that run amok and cause a bunch of trouble. She also rejects an emperor of a diff- of like a planet while she is in a bar who does not take the rejection well and then follows her throughout space while she's on all of these adventures trying to kill her, which makes everything just like doubly annoying. And she has developed feelings for her ship's engineer, which is not great <laughs> because there's a, like a weird power dynamic there, right? That she has to be, has to wants to be very considerate of. So there's a lot going on here, and all of it is hilarious. And Ava just tends to beat people up out to get out of situations, which is relatable content for me. <laughs> like, she's not great with words. She's not great with diplomacy. She's great at kicking you in the face while she's maybe a little drunk and then, like, running away forever. And I love her so deeply. So that's Chilling Effect by Valerie Valdez. Yeah, hard cosign for that, obviously. We both <laughs> we both have recommended that series lots. And this is also uh, a getbook standby, but it's been a minute and I think, you know, folks might have forgotten and it doesn't sound like you've read it. So a long way, no, the long way to a small angry planet. I never get that right. By Becky Chambers, which is the first in the Wayfarer series is the one I am recommending to you because it is it's a it's a group of adults who are very well realized. There is a really fascinating story. It is extremely found family in space. And I think it also, the relationships are so central to this. Like there is absolutely a plot that is happening, but like it's less plotty even than Chilling Effect. Like the plot is sort of, it's happening. But what you really care about is watching these characters interact with each other. And it's not like a perfect found family either. Like they make some choices. They're extremely debatable um, in which they're about how they interact with each other and like how they look out for each other and like best of intentions. But like, hmm, question mark. So it's mm-hmm. it's I appreciate that these relationships are not like everything's hunky dory all the time, like in the same way that, you know, like with Harry Potter, like they have fights and like they have to figure out how to reconcile their different feelings. And like somebody sometimes somebody gets jealous or sometimes somebody gets their feelings hurt. Like this is this is what relationships are about. And you really get those vibes from long way to a small angry planet. It is a space crew. Rosemary Harper is sort of our way in. She is from Mars and she's like a little bit on the run, like not like super Mm. on the run, but like trying to be on the down low. And she gets hired on basically to be an accountant for this interstellar construction crew. They make wormholes in space so that like other ships can go easier between different points. But like somebody has to do it the long way around and then make the wormhole, right? So that's what this crew is. It's composed of a bunch of, you know, persons from different species and places in space and persuasions. And it's like very chaotic and very interesting. And Rosemary's like totally excited about it. And then they get this job that like has a huge payoff, but a little bit high on the danger factor. And they, you know, get in a little bit over their heads and have to figure out how they're going to solve the problem. But like I said, like it's, it's so much about the relationships and that is really satisfying and lovely. And this series, I will mention, jumps around. It's not the same group of characters from each to the next. And it's also not the same sort of conceit, like you're not on the spaceship the whole time either. But I think what I love about it is that each character sort of gets to shine and leads you in a different direction in the world. So you get to explore this different, you know, sort of space vision universe that uh, Becky Chambers has created. So again, that's the first in the Wayfair series, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. 
All right. Our next question is from Casey, who is asking the question that is on everybody's mind these days. <laughs> I'm looking for books with the same feel as Ted Lasso. I don't necessarily care if it's an American Abroad story. I'm more interested in optimism, vulnerability, and humor. I don't think I'm looking for cozy or feel-good reads. If I had to describe it, I would say I want the heart and vulnerability of Ted Lasso. Nobody will shut up about Ted Lasso. It is, I, And I haven't watched it yet, but it is on my list. It is on my list. Amanda, have you already consumed Ted Lasso? I just went on an Instagram rant in my stories this morning about how I'm never going to watch Ted Lasso. <laughs> I'm never going to. And it's not nothing personal to Ted Lasso. I just don't take movie or TV recommendations from anyone because I don't watch mm. movies ever. And I barely watch any TV, not because there's anything wrong with like, I'm not one of those like, ugh, TV's a waste of time people. I just can't pay attention that long. It's, mm. I'm, it's never going to happen. I'm just never going to watch it. But I did watch the trailer for this question so that I could get a feel for what she was asking. <laughs> I watched the Ted Lasso trailer. That's as far as I got. Well, what did you pick? Okay. <laughs> I was, that was a whole rabbit hole. Um, I picked Dead in the Garden by Dahlia Donovan, which is the first book in the Grasmere Cottage Mystery series. And so when I watched the Ted Lasso trailer, I totally got what you were saying. It does, it's got, it seems like it has a character who is open to, well, vulnerability, right? Like he gets this job coaching soccer <laughs> in a different country and just brings his just, his just sweetness and light to all the cranky people around him. And Dead in the Garden, you know, is... It's a cozy mystery, but somebody is dead in the garden, hence the name. So I wouldn't say that it's like feel good because somebody is very obviously murdered and it's not just one person. But both of the characters, this is about a couple who live in the house that is attached to aforementioned garden, are so vulnerable. And they have created this this lovely community. So Valor Tarquin Scott is the main character. He's the son of an earl and has completely rejected that life. He, when he was at mm, fancy boarding school, the name of which I can't remember, Eaton, one of those, I don't know. Um, when he was at boarding school, he met his partner, Bashan, and then came out to his family and couldn't figure out if his family was more disappointed that he was gay or that he was with a brown person. So he doesn't speak to them anymore and has moved to the Lake District and opened a biscuit shop called The Ginger's Bread. <laughs> which I just love so much. Um, and has just created this very lovely life with his partner, who is a violinist for the London Symphony Orchestra. Bashan is autistic. And so they have a lot of like guardrails in their life about, you know, overstimulation and making sure that he has a routine and all of that. And then they find a dead body. And Bashan, for reasons that you get into in the book, becomes the first suspect and is arrested. And this is like very quick, happens very quick in the opening parts of the book. And then so Valor determines to get him out of jail. Like, obviously, he did not commit this crime. But he's more I mean, he's wants to get him out of jail because he's innocent. But also he knows that in prison, Bashan doesn't have access to his routines. He doesn't have access to any of anything that makes him feel comfortable. His whole life has been blown up and he's neurodivergent. And that's just going to be way harder for him than it is for anybody else who gets arrested. So he becomes determined to solve this crime. And his like just open hearted love for his partner is in every page and in every decision that he makes, every interaction with the cops. And something that I really like about this series is that when the cops tell Valor, like, this thing that you're about to do is very dangerous, please don't do that. He doesn't do that thing. <laughs> Which, you know, in most cozy mysteries, the the amateur is like, sure, I'm not going to do that. And then they immediately go do that thing, right? And then have to be rescued. He doesn't do it because his goal is to survive so that he can get his partner out of jail. His goal is not to go be some hero like and solve this crime for the, for the, the lulls or the fame or whatever. <laughs> so every... I don't know. It's just so warm-hearted and the there's so much discussion of feelings in a, in just it's just assumed that of course we discuss our feelings and of course we communicate with vulnerability to each other because that's how healthy friendships and relationships and communities are formed. It's just great. I just, very pleasant. I loved it. So that's Dead in the Garden by Dahlia Donovan. Yeah, I fell down an enormous rabbit hole of internet looking to see what other folks had talked about. And there was a really interesting list on Smexy books, which I'm going to leave a link to in the show notes, that called out a graphic novel that I adore. And I was like, oh, great, two for one. Like, this makes me, firstly, more excited to finally get to Ted Lasso when that happens. And also I get to talk about a book series that I love. So Check, Please by Ngozi Ukazu is my recommendation for you with a cosign from Smexy Books. 
And this series is so delightful because it is extremely vulnerable and open-hearted. It is also about athletes and like an unlikely athletic situation. So the main character in this college situation is a like very sweet gay baker who goes by the nickname Biddy. And he is on the Samwell University hockey team. And so is surrounded by like these giant hockey dudes. And <laughs> he has an enormous crush on the captain of the team, Jack, who like may or may not be oblivious to this fact. He has like a pie, you know, baking YouTube blog, which some of the narration takes place in the form of him like doing his video updates, which is really well done uh, from a graphic novel like narration perspective. It's really fun. And the the team are definitely like college age athletes. Like they have some, you know, they're like a little bit doofy and, you know, bro-y in certain ways. But they are also a team and they show up for each other in these beautiful ways. And the way that the story unfolds is so much about Like taking some little risks and like being open with people, even though it might be scary and having that trust reciprocated and validated. Like it's just like a big, huge hug. And the art is amazing. I remember when this series was just like on Tumblr or something. But now there's like hardcovers and you can buy them and there's multiples in the series and it's just so great. So I think you're really going to love it. Again, that is Check, Please. The first one is just called Hashtag Hockey by Ngozi Ukazu. All right. Our last question is from Mia, who says, a year into the pandemic, and I'm having a deep craving for books that help with my wanderlust. I'm looking for narrative nonfiction or travelogues to help transport me, but also integrate deeper understanding of a place's history and culture. Some recent books that I've read that I still have a book hangover from are Leave Only Footprints, Eat the Buddha, Buttermilk Graffiti, and Barbarian Days. Okay, I... um. Don't usually do this, but I picked a book that's not out yet, but it comes out soon. I picked The Window Seat, Notes from a Life in Motion by Aminata Forna, which comes out May 18th. So it's soon. You can pre-order it. Can and should. And I don't, you know, the the book's not being marketed as a travel book, but it absolutely is. Um, Like every... Every essay, it's an essay collection. Some of them have been previously published in magazines or whatever, but most of them are new. And every essay is about a new place. Like she travels for work uh, constantly. And every essay is a reflection of that. But they're also like you were asking for books that give you a deeper understanding of a place's history or culture. They're big, deep dives. So for example, there's a, an essay called the, the Last Vet, which is where she shadows the only veter- the only remaining veterinarian in Sierra Leone at the time when she goes there. And he works in Freetown and it, like serves serves the street dogs in Freetown. And it just like works as a as a veterinarian. And she doesn't live there. So it's you know, she's traveling for this job. And then she uses that as an opportunity to write this really thoughtful essay about how cultures treat their animals and how that reflects their values in other ways. And she has personal essays as well that aren't about her traveling for work. Like the opening essay is called The Window Seat. And it's about commercial air travel. Like that just that's it. And most of it is based on her childhood um, because her father, he was attending a Western school and then was like very much expected to come back to his country and like save it, you know, like go back and take our Western knowledge home and make our country great again kind of a thing. And that is a weird it's weird. That's like a weird new form of colonialism. And she is talking all about that idea through the lens of getting on airplanes and like spending time in airports and how as a child, air travel was so different from how it is now. But the the emotions that you can feel are the same. Like there's this one really evocative passage where she talks about flying over the desert like flying over the Sahara and the the way the light reflects and how it's similar to flying over the ocean or it's just fascinating. She's just a really, really great writer. So every essay here is in a new place or is about traveling in a new way. Sometimes it's for work. Sometimes it's personal. It's very centered around countries in Africa and then flying to the UK and comparisons between those things. But every essay is a deep look at some particular cultural issue that I like just had never thought about. Like I had never thought about veterinarians being a particularly Western or European idea. And I don't know that they are. She doesn't make that claim in the book, but an entire country with just one, like what, what, what would that be like? You know, it's just fascinating. So that's the window seat notes from a life in motion by Aminata Forna. Yeah, I've got that one on my TBR. I'm very looking forward to it. So I picked a 
book that is sort of a sideways pick, but I think it I think it works. It's The Outrun by Amy Liptrat. And this is a recovery memoir, first and foremost. Uh, Liptrat really struggles with alcoholism. And the reason I picked it is because she she was born and like grew up in the Orkney Islands, which is, you know, very sort of isolated, small area off the coast of Scotland. And like, it's very like windy and there aren't trees because the Vikings chopped them all down, uh, thanks to our listener who lives there for that tidbit. And, you know, it's just like a very distinct geography and feel to it. And so she leaves because, of course, like teenagers don't want to stay in that kind of small town, isolated environment, and generally speaking. And so she goes to London and she's like having a very London experience that also includes like partying way too hard and developing some really bad uh, habits around alcohol and ending up in an alcoholism situation. And so part of her recovery is going back home. And so she goes back to Orkney as trying to figure out, like, herself and, like, how to stay sober and, like, is she going to reconnect with her family? And, like, but she ends up taking a job with this wildlife conservancy. So, so much of the book is her, like, driving around at night looking for this one very particular kind of bird that they're trying to count. Or, like, you know, going along the cliffs and, like, you know, checking on all of these various markers for nature data. And, you know, swimming in this freezing ocean and thinking about, like, her childhood versus her experience of there now and what the people are like. And it is so rooted in that geography and culture of the islands. And it just, you feel like, you absolutely feel like you're there. And like, I don't know that I will ever get to go there, but it absolutely made me want to go and made me feel like when I got there, I would know some things, which is exactly sort of what you're talking about, like being someplace different and experiencing that place in a very real way. And she is a very interesting guide because, you know, she she's from there, but she left for reasons, you know, not all of which are frivolous. And so coming to terms with going back and what does that mean for herself and her life and, you know, what is what has changed since she was a kid. Uh, it's really, really well done. I will give trigger warnings for uh, mental illness, suicidal ideation and sexual assault. There are some, you know, dark moments of the soul and some really hard things that she goes through. But this book is is just great on so many levels. And it absolutely, when I was stuck at home, you know, last year in particular in the winter and like just could not even go outside, it made me feel like I was not in my house for a while, which was a very welcome feeling. So again, that's The Outrun by Amy Liptrot. And that's our show. Thanks so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink, for taking out all of our sneezes and coughs in the allergy season. Thanks, you all, for listening. We super appreciate that you tune in every week. Uh, If you want more book recommendations, you can always find those on bookriot.com. And if you want more podcasts, we have those too, bookriot.com slash listen. There's lots there for you. If you are so inclined, we would love for you to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks to find the show, and we do love to see the feedback. Thanks to our sponsors who make the show possible. And in between shows, you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson, ranting about television, apparently. <laughs> and and your dog, television and your dog. Yes, yes. <laughs> I am on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL. That's J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And you can also find me on Instagram at I am Jen IRL. And we will talk to you next time. 